Acts chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. We read previously in this chapter how Peter was miraculously delivered from prison and sure death through the fervent praying of the church. And when Peter arrived at Mary's house where a large group of believers were gathered to pray for him, they were so amazed that their prayers had been answered that they kept Peter standing outside and knocking. We ask God to do the impossible and then we are shocked when he does. Peter briefly explained to those gathered what had occurred and how the angel of the Lord had led him safely out of prison, but he knew that he could not stick around because as soon as King Herod discovered that his prized prisoner was missing, he would turn Jerusalem upside down in order to try to find him. So Peter left town, and we're picking up with our reading at Acts chapter 12, verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. This is God's word. Randy, could you advance to the next slide, please? In verses 18 through 19, we see the need for control. The need for control. Thank you. The Lord kept Peter's escape from being discovered until the next morning. So you can picture the chaos and confusion. The two guards within Peter's cell awake to find Peter's chains lying between them, but no Peter. The door to the cell is still locked. The two soldiers without are standing guard, waiting to be relieved by the next squad. They stood there all night, and the door never opened, and Peter never passed, at least not that they saw. But Peter is gone nevertheless, and it says in verse 18, there was no small disturbance. In fact, there was a big one. Every guard is, is suddenly placed on high alert, and then guards are dispatched in order to search the entire premises. This was not supposed to happen. So frantic is King Herod that the text indicates he himself joined in the search for Peter. But to no avail, Peter is long gone. When the Lord delivers, he delivers thoroughly and effectively. Peter will not be found. God will make sure of that. Not only is Herod confused and furious, he is also embarrassed. This whole fiasco of having four guards looking after one prisoner has backfired, and you know it was already overkill, and it didn't even work. And he couldn't take his anger out on Peter, so Herod turns to the guards. Roman law 
stipulated that if a guard allowed a prisoner to escape, he would become liable to the same penalty that the escaped prisoner would have suffered. Escaped prisoners, if they were caught, suffered death. Life for a life. And though Herod probably didn't employ Roman soldiers within his internal administration, he chose to apply this well-known Roman law to the circumstances. He examined their guards. He found their answers to be unsatisfying. I mean, they themselves couldn't even explain what happened, and they were there. And instead of Peter being led away to execution, as everyone was anticipating, the guards on duty, when Peter escaped, were led away to their execution. And perhaps this made the king feel a little bit better. At the very least, he had the satisfaction of directing his wrath toward someone. The incident, however, would not quickly be forgotten by the unbelieving Jews, by Herod's subjects who desired Peter's death. And so Herod, probably, at least in part, to escape the shame of his position, he leaves Judea to go spend some time in Caesarea. Uh, most probably spending time in a seaside palace there that was built by his grandfather, Herod the Great, who of course was king at the time of the birth of Jesus. Who has the power over life and death? Herod thought he did, especially after executing James, who was the first apostle to be put to death. And true, Peter did escape his prison, but Herod consoled himself by putting the guards to death. As king, of Jude, uh, as king of Judea, rather, Herod possessed significant authority. He could make decisions that improved people's lives or ruined them. He could decide in many cases who lived and who died. This is power. This is raw power. Make no mistake. There is something about the sin nature that resides in each of us that craves control. The more power a person possesses, the more control that he or she can exercise. The lust toward power, the desire to be in control is a tremendous force. Most of us, the vast majority of us, will never possess the earthly authority of a king or even the authority of a local political office. But we do spend a lot of time and energy trying to maintain control over our own lives. And if we're not careful, trying to maintain control over the lives of others as well. The problem is, is that we weren't created to be in control of our own lives. And definitely not in control of others. Yes, God does and has given us the freedom and responsibility to exercise self-control and to make our own decisions, but always under the authority of His ultimate control. We can trace this, this desire for ultimate control all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam was told plainly by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule, one law. There it is. Don't do it. And the consequence for doing so, God plainly said, would be death. Then along comes the serpent, lying to Eve, and says, you surely will not die. 
This was immediately followed by, this is chapter 3, verse 4 in Genesis, the serpent saying, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a lot there to unpack, but this is what I want to draw your attention to. You will be like God. You will be like God. You will call the shots. You will make your own decisions. You will have the power to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will be an autonomous free agent in the universe and you will be accountable to yourself and to yourself only. In a word, the lie was you will be in control. And in fact, Eve took control and she exercised her own free will and she ate of the fruit and her husband Adam did as well. And God, true to his word as he always is, brought upon them the judgment of spiritual death and later physical death. So what is the price of becoming your own ultimate authority and rejecting God's authority? Death. Separation from the Creator. And on top of that, we each inherit from our ancestor Adam a tendency inbred deep in the heart to exercise control over our own lives, or try to, and over our circumstances, and over the lives of others. We have the most control over our own lives, though anytime you remove yourself from God's authority, you will make decisions that bring the opposite of life and peace, which are death and disorder. You have some control over your circumstances, quite a bit actually. You make a number of choices that determine your environment, where you live, where you work, who you spend time with, the activities that you engage in. Even something like the extent to which you choose to keep your house or your yard tidy. God gives us freedom to make these kinds of choices that affect our circumstances, either for better or for worse. But we also all know, we all realize that there are many things that come our way that are simply out of our control. Health problems and accidents and bad weather and potholes and termites and a thousand other things outside of our control remind us that we cannot ultimately control our circumstances. Yet we sure try. And when it comes to people, well, they're the hardest to control. There's other folks. Because they're also infected by the same desire to rule their own lives their own way. And sometimes that just gets in the way of us desiring what we want to do. Herod, he was not much different than you and me. At least not before you voluntarily place yourself under the lordship and under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And even though you will spend a lifetime with the sanctifying help of the Holy Spirit, resisting what John calls in 1 John 2.16, the boastful pride of life, we have Herod here simply possessing more earthly power to try to make things turn out like he wanted. 
And when they didn't, when Peter escaped, he demanded the death of the guards. He doubled down. And so do you and me. If you're not careful, when things do not go according to plan, instead of stepping back, repenting of your desire to be in control and seeking the will of God, you will look around for someone to lash out at. You will try to regain some authority in the midst of an embarrassing situation. You will head down to, to Caesarea in order to get out of town and to reassert your control. And this is always folly. It will never end well. It did not end well for Eve. It did not end well for Herod. And it won't end well for you and me. Should we choose to persist in maintaining this autonomous control over our lives? So Herod was consumed with, with the need to control his situation. But he's about to discover, verses 20 through 23, the one who is really in control. The one who is really in control. Caesarea. It's a coastal city. If you recall, it's the same city that Peter went in order to preach the gospel to the Roman centurion Cornelius, who lived there. And while in Caesarea, Herod, King Herod, is given the opportunity to deal with a certain situation that has arisen. Tyre and Sidon, to the north, were two ancient Phoenician cities, cities that were mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. They lied outside of Israel's territory. Today it's modern-day Lebanon. But because Tyre and Sidon were both coastal cities, they relied heavily on fishing and on the commerce that came in from the sea to sustain their economies. This also meant that they relied heavily on the Galilee region to supplement their food supply. Galilee was Herod's territory. Now remember, there's a famine that, that fell over Judea and affected all of Israel. And this too had a detrimental effect on the amount of food that the people of Tyre and Sidon could procure. On top of this, the populace of these two cities had somehow, we're not told, but somehow they offended Herod. Now, as we've already noted about Herod's character, that was not uh, especially difficult to do. He was pretty easily offendable. But as a result of this offense, it seems that Herod not only limited the food supply from Galilee, but that he also imposed an embargo on ships that were coming in to the Phoenician ports. And since Tyre and Sidon were dependent upon being in the good graces of King Herod of Judea, in order to secure their food supply, they sent a delegation south to him at Caesarea. It's difficult to get an audience with royalty, especially if the king or queen happens to be upset with you. And so Luke, here in verse 20, Luke, the writer of Acts, he explains that the people had won over Belastus, the king's chamberlain. A chamberlain was this high-ranking high and trusted official in the king's court. And since the Phoenician people needed access to the king's ear, they were able to go through Blastus to secure an audience with Herod. That's the setup. That's what's going on here. Verse 21, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum. 
The year is probably 44 AD, so we're talking about roughly 10 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And there's this opinion among some scholars that Herod might also have gone to Caesarea in order to participate in festivities that year that were honoring the emperor taking place at that time. This day could have very well been Caesar's birthday, in fact, his birthday celebration. And of course, it was Caesar, the emperor, who appointed Herod. At any rate, there were many people in Caesarea besides the delegation from Tyre and Sidon. And Herod chose this day to specifically address the issue involving the food shortage on an appointed day. Herod, fresh from the humiliating personal defeat of Peter's escape, he's looking for a way to redeem himself before the people. And what better way to do that than to stroke his ego? And so it says that this royal apparel that Herod puts on is more than just everyday kingly clothing. Josephus, who's a contemporary secular historian of Luke, lived at the relatively the same time period. He describes Herod's robe like this. On the second day of the shows, Agrippa, Herod, put on a robe made of silver throughout, of altogether wonderful weaving, and entered the theater at the break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it. And its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed on it. So I want you to imagine this. This silver robe reflecting the rays of the rising morning sun. Depending on your angle in the audience, it would have been blinding. It would appear as if Herod was shining with divine glory so, so bright that it hurt your eyes to look upon him. And in this state, Herod begins to speak, begins addressing the issue he had with the people of Tyre and Sidon. You know, whether his listeners were, were so impressed with his robe or so desirous to flatter him in order to get what they wanted, or both, they began to shout, verse 22, the voice of a god and not of a man. The voice of a God, and not of a man. Do you hear the echo of that first lie of the adversary toward Eve? You will be like God. You will be like God. And that's exactly what Herod wanted to hear. That he spoke with the authority of God, and that he had the power of life and of death. And in a sense, he did. He controlled the food supply. He who controls the food supply controls the people. So his decision literally meant the difference between life and death for some. And Herod, he, he relished that level of control, especially after having lost so much face with Peter's escape. And this is, in fact, why a, a unified world economic system is so dangerous. Perhaps you've heard, really the last year and a half since, since COVID started, this phrase, the Great Reset. The Great Reset. Basically, it's this plan of the, the World Economic Forum to use the negative economic effects of COVID lockdowns to reset the entire international economy. 
in case you haven't noticed, there's, a, there's quite a bit of a, of a shortage in many, many industries and, and sectors of society. Whole brand new trucks sitting on lots that can't be sold because they don't have a certain ship from China. Or signs that can't be made because sign makers can't get the materials that they need. Go to Tim's and you'll notice uh, the things that are not on the shelves that used to be. The problem is the way that these, these top politicians, economists are using the word reset. And what they mean by that is to do away with, with sovereign economies of nations. That would mean doing away with the economy of the United States and placing everyone under the same currency and under the same economic system. And one of the main dangers of this, of course, is that, that one entity controls the economy and therefore what? The food supply. The food supply. People will give up all sorts of rights. In fact, a lot of people will give up all of their rights if they are hungry enough. It's happened all throughout history. We need to be mindful of such plans. We need to support local economies. When times get tough, it is your neighbors that will be there for you and you for them. You will be like God. You will be like God. It's a lie that the devil tries to sell to each of us. More often than you're probably aware, to be like God is to be under the illusion that you are in control. It is to believe the lie that by trying to control your circumstances or other people, that you're in control. And again, God does give each of us the capacity, the ability to make decisions. He does delegate a certain amount of authority and self-determination to each of us, no doubt. But this authority is always to be exercised, always under His authority. That is that we make our decisions based on God's Word and based on God's will. We acknowledge that He is in control. We submit to Him. You will be like God to your own detriment and ultimately death. And for the Christian, this is not eternal death. The Christian possesses eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the spiritual senses of you and me are dulled when we refuse to submit to God in any area of our lives. There's an area of your life that you're not submitting, that you're keeping in darkness. That does dull your spiritual senses. And so that the life of God cannot throw, uh, flow freely when we shut out the voice of the Holy Spirit. So there is spiritual deadness that settles in the heart of the Christian until you repent. Herod, he had an opportunity to refuse the claim of the crowd. Even now, after all he had done to try to destroy the people of God, Herod could have repented, but he did not. He reveled in the praise. He believed the illusion that he was, in fact, in control. He bought the lie that he did possess his own authority instead of authority that he only possessed because God had delegated it to him. And in fact, all authority is delegated by God, whether a person realizes it or not. But Herod knew better. I mean, he was the king of the Jewish people. He knew the prohibition against idolatry. 
and taking into account what he knew, the Lord acted swiftly. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. It doesn't seem that this angel appeared to Herod like he did to Peter in prison, but he was present nevertheless, the agent through which God executed judgment. Notice the similarities. The angel previously struck Peter's side to wake him up. Now the angel struck Herod to put him to sleep, the ultimate sleep. Peter's ability to sleep in prison was a sign of his trusting in God. Herod's desire to receive praise as a God was a sign of his rejection of God. Peter was struck in order to live in freedom. Herod was struck in order to die in bondage. That which Herod proposed for Peter fell upon him. Luke's account of Herod's death is brief. Verse 23, he was eaten by worms and died. There you go. Josephus, the historian, gives us more information. Now remember, Josephus' writings are not scripture. They are not 100% accurate. But overall, he is considered a credible source for historical information. In his writing, it allows us to understand more of what's going on here. So allow me to read. Josephus writes, At the same time, a pang of grief pierced his heart. He was seized by a severe pain in his belly, which began with a most violent attack. And when he had suffered continuously for five days from the pain in his belly, he died in the 54th year of his age. So it seems with that information that the moment the angel struck Herod, he began suffering severe stomach pain. And these symptoms in the manner of death are consistent with a type of intestinal worm that's found in this part of the world. And when those worms get large enough in the system, they form a mass and they cause intestinal obstruction. Sorry to be so graphic this morning. The pain is excruciating and death is inevitable without treatment. It's not that Herod just happened to die of an intestinal infestation, however. No, no. The presence of the angel of the Lord shows us the divine origin of a natural disease. We often separate the, the physical from the spiritual, but the Bible does not do that. The Bible doesn't do that. In fact, the Old Testament king Jehoram also died of a painful bowel disease, judgment for leading Judah into idolatry. So what was the reason that Herod was struck dead? Verse 23, he did not give God the glory. He allowed himself to be thought of as God, or at least as a God, and God will not share his glory with anyone. Anytime you wrest control from God's hands by insisting on doing it your way, you are refusing to give him the glory. You are essentially making yourself an idol. You're saying, I know best. I can figure it out. I'm in control. I'll do it my way. And though it may not seem like it, you are setting yourself above God when you harbor such thoughts. If trying to control your circumstances and other people is a form of self-worship, then what is the remedy? What is the remedy to that? Well, do what Herod failed to do. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. 
And that's not just a phrase that you say. To give God the glory is to act as if He is in control because you believe that He is in control. It means to, to make decisions based on His Word. It is to seek His wisdom. It means to defer to God and not to your own judgments or to your own desires or even your own fears. And that's scary. We don't like to feel like that we're not in control. We do a lot of things to avoid that feeling. But there are so many things outside of our control that we tend to do all this in our power to control those things that we think we can. And so we, we manipulate others, we intimidate others, we flatter others, we try to stave off undesirable circumstances by looking to the accumulation of money and of stuff. We insist that our plans be followed. We build up emotional walls so we don't have to feel the pain that others can inflict upon us. We try to control as much as we possibly can. And all of this, all of it leads to idolatry. The worship of self. It's a form of idolatry. We tell ourselves we're in control. We act like we're in control. We believe people when they tell us how much self-control we have or when they praise our achievements. And there's nothing wrong with being commended. There's nothing wrong with receiving praise. The sin lies in hoarding that praise and refusing to direct it where it is due. And that is to God. He's the source of any good thing you have, any good thing you can do. And so deflect that praise back to Him. God has a way of letting us know that we're not in control. He let Herod know. And when we recognize who is in control, we will see, verse 24, the word of the Lord take control. We'll see the word of the Lord take control. Herod miscalculated when he came against the people of God. He was not only humiliated, he ultimately lost his life. Look at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. We noticed at the beginning of this chapter how Peter was arrested during the Passover week. While the Jewish people were celebrating their freedom from slavery in Egypt nearly 1,700 years before this time, Peter was bound in chains. Here is another reminder of the Israelites' difficult circumstances as slaves in Egypt. You say, how is that? Let me tell you. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, we read how the Pharaoh appointed taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with hard labor. And the Israelites' lives grew more and more difficult. But then we read in verse 12, Exodus chapter 1, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Lord had his hand upon his people, even though their lives grew increasingly harder, their loads grew heavier, the whips fell with more frequency. The Lord caused the population to grow to such an extent that the Egyptians feared their own slave class. And that is what we see happening spiritually with the church here in verse 24 of chapter 12 in Acts. Not only has the Lord vindicated himself and his people by judging King Herod the persecutor, 
God is also causing his word to do what? To grow and to multiply. And this is one of the ways that God uses persecution. As we, the people of God, stand firm in faith, even when there is a steep cost for following Jesus, God is accomplishing what the enemies of God are trying to stop. When the word of God is proclaimed in faith, the Lord will cause growth and multiplication. How is God's word proclaimed? Well, it might be that you share the gospel with somebody. That's an obvious way. You share the gospel with somebody. You, you explain the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to them. Are you looking for those opportunities? You plant a seed in a heart that God will cause to grow in his time and in his way. That's how God adds to his church. The gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit is unleashed. Gospel proclaimed, Holy Spirit unleashed. But the word also goes forth anytime you share any truth of God. This might be a Bible verse that you share with a coworker that's applicable to the situation that they've just described to you in their life. It might simply be a truth that you know the Scripture teaches. You might not even remember the exact wording or where to find it in your Bible, but it's, it's a statement that expresses the truth of God's Word. There's multiple opportunities for us to share God's truth according to His Word all throughout our days. Anytime the truth of God according to the Word of God goes forth, the Lord is faithful to apply that truth to the heart of the hearer. Do you believe that? It could be as simple as you sharing with someone that the Lord brings across your path tomorrow what you learned from this message today. Listen to this promise, Isaiah 55, 11. This is a good verse to memorize. Isaiah 55, 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. In other words, God's word, the promise is God's word will always accomplish what God intends for it to do. Spiritual growth and spiritual multiplication. Threats cannot stop God's word from causing growth and from multiplying. Persecution cannot stop it. Putting believers in prison cannot stop it. Putting believers to death cannot stop it. Tyrannical kings and governments cannot stop it. And when they try, with all the power of the state behind them, think the Taliban, like Herod, they find that the Lord has a way of turning their plots back upon their own heads. The adversary cannot stop God's word from going forth and accomplishing its purposes though he will try to discourage you and disillusion you and perhaps even despair of life itself. But the devil flees when God's word is spoken and believed. The sword of the Spirit is what? The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. That's Ephesians 6.17. The word of God is the only offensive 
offensive weapon that we are given as believers, all of the other pieces of armor are defensive. The Word of God is a sword because when you wield it in faith, the Holy Spirit goes to work. Do you believe that? When you wield the Word of God in faith, the Holy Spirit's backing you up. He's going to work. Nothing, nothing can stop God's Word from growing and multiplying except, except you and me. The only thing that God will allow to hinder His Word going forth is when you refuse to open your mouth and speak it. God will not force you out of silence. He will wait, ready to move in mighty and supernatural and unexplainable ways if you will be a conduit through which His Word can flow. It's waiting on His people. The rain has to come from heaven before the seed receives the moisture it needs to sprout. The Word has to be sown or there's nothing to grow and multiply. You ever look at your garden in the early spring and just wish that it would grow? Probably not. You probably went and bought some seed and sowed that seed and then wished that it would grow. You had a much better chance of seeing something sprout up if something was sown. And guess what? God has entrusted this awesome responsibility of being his voice to you and me, to his church. Wow, God's depending, in a sense, on us. Not depending on us for anything that he needs, but waiting on us to share his truth. Here's the formula for growth. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Spiritual life occurs in your life. Spiritual growth occurs in your life when you hear God's word, whether that's reading it in the Bible or hearing it from the lips of somebody else. When you hear God's word and believe it. It's pretty simple, very simple formula. You hear it, you believe it. And so spiritual growth occurs in the lives of other people in the exact same way when they hear God's word and believe it. Romans 10, 14. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they? So do you desire to see the church grow spiritually and to multiply members? Is that what you desire? Then do your part in sharing God's word to those that God brings into your path. And before your palms get sweaty and you start to get nervous, it does not have to be complicated. It does not have to be difficult. Your, your daily encounters are not accidents. It can be as simple as you just praying with somebody and sharing scripture through that prayer. It's a very um, low-key way to share truth with people. Most people will not refuse if you ask them if you can pray for them. You can share a lot of truth in a prayer. It can be as simple as giving somebody a Bible verse. Maybe a verse the Lord gave you that morning when you were reading your Bible, and you can share that with somebody there's a lot of power in that, a lot of power that God can use. It could be as simple as just speaking truth into a situation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have some wisdom, you know some truth. When you're talking to people and you're hearing about the difficulties in their lives, just share truth with them. God will use that. A curse of the fall. 
part of what sin has distorted in each of our hearts is that we lust after control. We want to control our own lives. We want to control our circumstances. We want to control the lives of others. But when Jesus Christ came to live as a man, he did the opposite. Jesus acknowledged that he was not in ultimate control of his life. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. The Son of God looked to his Father to guide him. Jesus looked to God to guide him. He made decisions based on his Father's desire. Jesus did not try to control his circumstances. He submitted to them as sent to him by a loving Father in heaven who always does and allows what is best, even when we don't recognize it. And Jesus did not try to control others. He taught them. He spoke truth to them. He even rebuked them when they were in error. But he did not manipulate or scheme or maneuver. And that is why he allowed himself to be led to a cross and nailed to it. That's why he allowed himself to be put to death, receiving the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus was obedient. He exercised obedience, submission. He let go control. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He allowed his father to call the shots. And because he submitted to the Father, Jesus was raised from the grave. He was given eternal life. And now he freely justifies. That means makes you right with God. He freely justifies, raises up, and gives eternal life to anyone who turns in faith from the darkness of sin and death to his life and life. Jesus gave up control so that you can submit to God's control. If you live your life for yourself, insisting to make your own way, you will die in your sins. And you will be separated from your Creator for an eternity. But if you entrust your life and your eternity to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will come in and take control. And obeying Him, you'll still have a choice. God doesn't take away your choice. But when you obey the Holy Spirit and do the will of God, it will become the supreme delight of your existence. If you doubt that, just try it. Obedience is a joyful thing for the Christian. You cannot earn salvation by how you live. Jesus earned it for you by how he lived. You cannot earn forgiveness by what you do. Jesus purchased your forgiveness by dying for you. You cannot earn eternal life by trying hard. Jesus secured eternal life for you by rising from the grave. There's nothing more difficult than raising yourself from the dead. Thankfully, Jesus rose on our behalf. You cannot control your own life without it leading to death. 
but Jesus will lead and guide you if you will trust and obey when he says, follow me. Whether that's the first time that you've made that decision to say, yes, I will follow Jesus with my life. I will lay my life down at his feet and I will enter into his kingdom and I will call him my king. Whether that's the first time you make that decision or whether it's just the daily call of Jesus to follow me. Follow me. Let him be in control. He knows where he's going. And he knows where you need to go. And he's faithful. He's faithful to guide you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess our tendency, our desire to control situations, to take control of our own lives, to even try to control other people. We don't want to do that anymore, Lord. We want you to be in control. We want to follow you. So Lord, we ask that, that we would clearly hear your Holy Spirit when, it, when, it, when he speaks into our hearts and shows us those areas that we are trying to maintain control over. And Lord, give us the grace to release that to you. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would, you would search our hearts. Your word says that you search the, the motives and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, if there are areas that we're trying to be in control of, we want to release those and repent of those and release those into your hands. So help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name.